This morning was one of those rare mornings where I took care of Eden by myself for a little bit. You know, my wife usually does that. She's usually the one, yeah, there you go. She's usually the one that takes care of the kids in the morning, but my wife is at home sick and Jordan is home sick, but Eden, she's all good. So, you know, me and Eden hung out this morning and we, brought, we came to church together. I came at like 9.05 and there were no parking spots, so I parked over there for the first time in years. I don't know if I've ever really parked over there in that parking lot because uh, I'm usually here early. But I was here this morning with Eden and it was fun. And you know, when you hang out with Eden, there's some things you get to know pretty fast about her. And that's that she likes to ask some questions. And the first kind of questions that she asks, and some of you know her pretty well, she's really good at asking questions about stuff that's right in front of her, right? Like her most commonly asked questions, I wrote down three of them. One of them is this, I, I want some. I want something. That means I want whatever that thing is right in front of me. Or if something's a little bit further away, she says, I want that right there. Right? It's like, okay, uh, you want that right there. And these basically all mean the same thing. Or the third question she asks, I want more. I want more. I want some. I want that right there. I want more. Right? That is all about the food that's right in front of her, or she wants to play on something right there, or she wants us to pick up her little Mickey Mouse toy right there, whatever, right? But all of her questions, they're good questions, right? But they're really simple questions. And really, all those questions have something in common. They all involve stuff that is right in front of Eden's eyes, because Eden is two years old, and she's not like the most long-term thinker, you know? She doesn't think about college she doesn't think about her career. She doesn't think about her, her children one day. She does not thinking that way because she's two years old. And none of us would say, oh, I can't believe Eden's not asking for, you know, or, or if you're saving for her retirement account or her college fund. Is she asking for that? Like, that's more important than having some goldfish right in front of her. But none of us fault Eden for that, right? But at some point, if all she would do is ask for the goldfish right in front of her, and she never was able to think big picture, and she was never able to ask for big things, you would get concerned at some point, right? And that's just the same way with how Jesus teaches us to pray, right? We will all instinctually pray to God for the things that we need. When you're sick, that might be one of the only times you just feel this need, I need to ask God. Oh, God, help me. My stomach hurts. Oh, God, my leg hurts. Oh, God, my arm hurts. Help me, help me. Make me feel better, right? And those aren't bad prayers because they're what's right in front of us. But those are prayers like the request that Eden has, right? I want that right there. I want more. I want some. Like it's, it's all about what's right in front of you. And those aren't bad, but there's a better, more mature way to pray and a, a bigger way to ask God for things that go beyond the things right in front of us that can really only happen as we grow up in Christ. And Jesus is going to have a lot to tell us about that right here in Matthew chapter 6. So I want everyone to grab a Bible and look at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at two verses this morning. This is the beginning of what's called the Lord's Prayer, which is funny, even though it's, it's not the prayer that Jesus would pray, it's how he teaches us to pray. So I want everyone to check this out. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 9. The last four verses we talked about two weeks ago before we went to camp, but those four verses were all about this. You could pray in such a way that looks good on the outside, but it's really bad, and that God doesn't care about. And that's if you're praying to get other people's attention. Or if you're praying and you're really just speaking to people and not to God, Jesus says, be careful because that kind of prayer, God doesn't really value that kind of prayer. But you know what kind of prayer he does value? When you go to God and you pour out your heart to God. He does value that. Whether it be in secret, like he talks about, or in this instance, where he's going to say, pray like this, and he's going to use plural pronouns. He's going to say, our Father 
in heaven. So this prayer that he's about to pray is one that we should pray together, right? When Christians get together, these are the kinds of things we should pray for individually and also when we're together. The last verse that we covered, verse eight, talks about how God knows our needs before we ask them. So it's not as if we're telling God something about how we feel or what we want that he doesn't already know. So the point of prayer is not to inform God because God already knows. The point of prayer is to ask God and to request things of God. That's true, but it's not to inform him of something he doesn't already know. So when we ask him for things, we can be confident God already knows we need these, but he does invite us to ask. So look at what Jesus says. This is how we should pray. He says, pray then like this. So this will serve kind of as a model for how we should pray. First line, he says, our father in heaven. So who are we talking to when we pray? He gives two big ideas. Well, three, our, right? So this isn't just your father or Jesus's father. This is our father. And who is this, this God we pray to? He's our father. He's someone who has care and concern and knowledge and authority and capability. That's who our God is. But where is this God? This, this God is in heaven. So he brings two ideas that seem contradictory and he puts them together. Our father in heaven. Our father is close to us, right? That means God is ready and willing to listen to our requests. But remember who this God is. This God is not just your buddy. This God is not just a friend. This God is in heaven. And that language invokes all of what the Old Testament says. We read one of the Psalms in worship this morning where in Psalm 113, it says, God is in the heavens, right? God is high, even above all the heavens, he rules. He, he rules the, the, the space. He rules every galaxy. Like, that's the God we pray to. So, yes, he's our father. He cares for us, but don't forget who he is. He's in heaven. He has a crazy level of authority that you and I can't even comprehend, but he invites us to ask. So he says, our father in heaven. That's phrase number one. Phrase number two is, hallowed be your name. Now, that sounds like very old language that you might not be familiar with. Uh, hallowed, is that like Halloween? What does that mean? So hallowed is the word that comes from the root word holy. So to be holy, you might know, that means to be perfect or to be separate, really is what it means. And we say God is holy. And his name, and when you talk about the name of something in the Bible, that doesn't just mean, you know, uh, you know the, the letters that make up their name. The name represents who they are. So if I said, you know, don't disrespect my name, right? That doesn't mean don't write John in uh, curly letters, which would make it less masculine. That's not what I mean to disrespect my name. What do I mean by to disrespect my name? You'd be like, if you, I don't know, slandered me or you made up story, like that would be disrespecting someone's name. It's not their name name, it's their, their character and who they are, right? So he says here, one thing that you should pray to God is that his name would be held up as holy, that people would know God, that people would see God as holy. And it's interesting, all these requests, the first three requests here, all include the pronoun your. So we're talking to God about his things. It's interesting. They're not about us. None of the first three requests have anything to do with you. They have nothing to do with me. They have everything to do with God. So the first one is, hallowed be your name, right? May God's name be revered as holy. May everyone see that God is holy. And who are we asking? We're, at, we're not asking people, we're asking God. So this is another kind of awkward part about this prayer. You're asking God to glorify or make honored himself, right? That's what we're asking. 
That's literally what he's saying. So what does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about more about what that really means, but suffice it to say now, one and the first thing that you should pray for is that God would be seen as holy and that God would show who he is to the world, to everybody. That's the first thing. Next phrase, your kingdom come. Three little words there, which again, your, so we're talking about God. Kingdom, that's a huge concept in the Bible. What does this kingdom mean? And he says the word come, which means to arrive or to take place. So he's saying he wants the kingdom of God to break into the world. He wants it to be here. He wants it not to grow or expand, but he wants it to, to arrive all at once. He wants it to be established. What is he talking about there? Well, the whole Bible has this theme about the kingdom of God. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in the Gospels. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see it in the epistles. Everywhere throughout the Bible, language about kingdom comes up. And we'll study more about what that means when we get to that in, this, in the third point. But the idea is that we want God to rule over everything and everyone. And I want you to think about something. Does God now rule over everything and everyone? In one sense, you say, yeah, he does, right? Because it's, he is the God. He is the creator of everybody. But in practice, does everyone submit to God? Does every cell in your body submit to God? In one sense, yes, right? Because God's the sovereign Lord. Everything happens because God wants it to. But when God made the world, he designed it to be without disease or sickness or sin. But Romans 8 says one day, the curse that's on the world will be reversed, and then everything will do exactly what God wants, right? So there's this idea that we are in God's big kingdom that he established, but one day it will be all perfect, so he's asking for that to take place. When does that take place? It takes place when Jesus returns to this earth. Every single generation of Christians who believes the gospel has always believed that Jesus will return to earth at some point in the future. People can disagree about the timing of that. People can disagree about all the things that you know, surround that event. But every Christian agrees. If you don't believe this part, it disqualifies you as a Christian. You have to believe that Jesus is going to come back physically, bodily. He is going to reign on the earth. He's going to be the king of the whole world. So Jesus says, that's what you should pray for. Before we pray for your stuff, before we ask for your daily bread and everything else he's going to pray for, pray that God would be honored. Pray that his kingdom would be established on earth. And then the third thing, look at the next phrase, your will be done. So who are we talking to? Your, we're talking to God, about God. Your will, what does that mean? Right, there's, again, if you think about all the theology that's contained in the word kingdom, if you think about all the theology that's contained in God's will, like people talk about how this is the, this is like the summary statement of everything in the Sermon on the Mount. This is actually, if you take the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, this is the center of the center section of the center section, okay? And the Lord's Prayer is the center of that section. It's just the middle, right? And I think Matthew did it that way, and he was really smart when he put this book together and arranged the teachings of Jesus to show us Everything comes down to this prayer right here. We don't really move past this, but your will be done. What does that mean? So we're asking God that God would get his way, that things would happen the way God wants them to happen. And then once you start praying about that, and if you were to pray this morning, God, I want your will to be done. How are you going to start to live? How are you going to start to talk? How are you going to start to act? If you were praying that sincerely, you wanted things to happen the way God wanted them to happen. And you really cared about that. Now, all of a sudden, 
you'd be praying like Jesus prayed in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. I, I know that I have all these desires, right? But God has this other set of desires because he's another person. He's different than me. And I want my desires to match his. I'm not asking God's desires to match mine. It's very interesting. Oftentimes when we pray, we are really actually asking God to change his plans and make them more like what we want, what our plans would be. That's not the right kind of praying. We should start praying, your will be done. So this teaches us a lot. So the three requests, what are they? That God would be honored, that God's kingdom would come, and that God's will would be done. And now notice this little phrase, which is very important. On earth as it is in heaven. Okay, that's the way we translate it in English. But in the original language, it says, as in heaven, so on earth. Right, which is the same thing. But it's interesting. Heaven comes first. As in heaven. So what's going on in heaven right now? It's hard to define. Here's some things I know that are going on in heaven. God's name is being honored, right? Request number one. God's name is being hallowed in heaven. Every scene of heaven, we always get this worship of God. So people are worshiping God in heaven, okay? What else is happening in heaven? Who rules heaven? Is Satan like fighting for a spot in heaven? No, God rules completely, okay? What else? Is God's will being done in heaven? Absolutely. Everything that happens is God's will in heaven, right? So these three requests, it's so interesting. They're all happening in heaven. God is king. He rules. God is being honored and hallowed. And God's will is being done. And Jesus says, as in heaven, so on earth. The idea is, God, we want everything good. Your kingdom, your, your authority, your honor, your will. We want that to happen here. And that's how we pray. This is the start of how we should pray. And then he's going to say, in verse 11, let's just read these uh, just to get the context. Verse 11, 12, 13, he goes on and says, give us this day our daily bread. So asking for what we need. And God, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This Lord's Prayer, so much has been written on it. So many people have preached this. So many people have prayed this. Maybe depending on your, your upbringing, maybe you were trained to recite this prayer over and over again, right? Which is not necessarily a bad thing unless it becomes some mindless thing you do, right? It's not a bad thing to recite this prayer because it's like reciting any of God's word. Once you recite it, it kind of ingrains in your mind and all of a sudden it becomes the way that you want to pray. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's actually a, a pretty good thing. But here... He starts off the first half. We're going to only look at verses 9 and 10. you got four points. You probably know what they're going to be. I've already kind of given them to you. But the first thing is, okay, as we pray, how should we pray? Well, the first phrase is not a request. It's the address. So it's the address to God. That's, that's the first point. It's point two, three, and four. Those are the requests. Request one, request two, request three. So what's the first thing, the address? Well, he's called Father and he's called in heaven. So here's the two things I want you to write down. I want you to pray to God with more confidence and more reverence. Both of those things. Right? That's point number one. Confidence as father, reverence because he's in heaven. The way that you pray cannot be all one or the other. For example, you might say, what's so wrong with thinking about God as in heaven, but not as father? Okay, here's how you will start to pray. You will pray like the Gentiles who pray for a long time to try to get God's attention. You'll think you've got to be 20 minutes into your prayer for God to start listening to you. Or you'll think that you've got to like do weird sacrifices 
first before God will listen to you. If you don't accept that he's father because of what Jesus has done, well, then you'll pray like a Gentile. Even though you might have a lot of reverence, but you'll have a misunderstanding of who God is, right? The alternative problem is easier to see probably in our circles, which is people think of God as father, but they do not think about him as in heaven. They think, yeah, he, he's, he's my father, so I can complain to him and I can vent to him and I can say whatever I want to God because, you know, he knows it already. Well, be careful about that because your father is also in heaven. God is not just a loving father. He is that, but he's more than that. He is a loving father, but he's also in heaven. And if you forget that he's in heaven, you'll start praying things probably wrongly. You'll, you'll probably start asking for things in ways that are, are wrong. But let's start with, with the good side of that, more confidence, right? God is Father. What does the rest of the Bible say about this? I got a, a lot of verses for you to write down today. We're not going to turn to any of them except for one, but I want you to write these verses down. First one is Psalm 103, verse 13. So the Old Testament is going to tell us, yes, God has care for us like a father. Listen to this. This is Psalm 103, verse 13. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Even there, do you see Father and heaven? Like those who do what? Those who love God? Nope, those who fear God. Who does God show compassion to? Those who reverence him. Like he does show compassion. He does love us. He loves us more than I can explain to you, but, but he's in heaven. And if you don't think that way, and if you don't fear God, well, then who does this promise apply to? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, those who respect him as the God that he is. Right? There's no promises in scripture that God will listen to people who don't respect him. There's no promises for that. The promises of God's fatherly care have to do with, do we recognize God for who he is? Psalm 68 says something similar. Psalm 68 verses five and six it says, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary, the lonely people in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Okay, what do you get? You still get God's fatherly good care for his people. And then like, even as the psalmist is saying that, there's the other side of that, which is, oh, but if you're not right with God, if you push against his authority, if you fight him, if you're against God, well, then you're not on his side, right? Then you don't have that fatherly compassion and care. There's a doctrine uh, that maybe you've not heard this, but you've probably seen it. It's called the universal fatherhood of God, uh, and it's wrong, okay? It's the idea that, well, everyone is God's kid in the exact same way. Therefore, God must love everyone in the exact same way. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does teach that God does love everybody in some ways, it, but it does teach that God has this special love and care for the people that fear him, the people that are his children. In the New Testament sense, the people who are the redeemed people of Christ. And if, if you start, and this is where a lot of uh, progressive Christianity goes wrong, they start with the idea of, well, my baseline assumption is I believe in the universal fatherhood of God. God loves all of us individually exactly the same. You may have heard people say that before, okay? That's not true. And if you start there and then you build everything out after that, you'll say, well, God must accept everything I do because he loves me just as much as he loves anybody else. God accepts me, and if I feel a certain way, he must accept how I feel. Therefore, what I feel must be good. All of a sudden, we've gone completely against what God says. 
right? So you can't start. With, I know you didn't come in here saying like, yeah, no, I think I hold to the universal fatherhood of God. But, but you've heard this before, right? God loves everyone exactly the same way. And he accepts us all for who we are. Have you heard that before? That's the remnants of the universal fatherhood of God. Now, is there any truth to that? There's some truth to that. God does love all of us. The scriptures say that he does care for all of us. He provides for all of us. But does he accept everything we do? No. In fact, he told you what he accepts and he told you what he doesn't accept in his word. And God sets the parameters for that. We don't. I don't, certainly. This book has existed before I've brought it to you, right? If I'm the first person who's ever taught you the Bible, you know that this has existed long before me, right? And it's long before your parents, long before your grandparents. This is God's truth. He shows his care. He's father, but he is in heaven. Maybe the best way to put this is in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. This is probably the most important uh, verse about this. It says, uh, this is Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Here's what God says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So here's what we know about God. God is in heaven. He inhabits eternity. Think about that, eternity. How long does eternity go? Uh, forever, but he extends to all of it. It's like God is bigger than eternity. Eternity fits in God, inside God's box. Right? He's bigger than that. He fills eternity. He's in heaven. He fills the highest heavens, whatever that even means. Like, I don't even know what that means. Do you know what that means? I don't know what that means, right? God it, it fills that. Okay, but where else does God love to be? He loves to be with his humble people, people who are contrite. Contrite means to be repentant. That means that you recognize your sin before God and you don't want to live in that sin anymore and you want to do what God says. That's where God dwells too. He's our father, but he's in heaven. That's why the Old Testament even says this. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Like, pause before you go pray. And in this sense, He's going to talk about like giving offerings to God or making vows. He says, be super slow to do that. Be careful. Don't let your mouth be rash. Don't let your heart be hasty. That's parallelism to say, hey, be slow to utter a word before God. Why? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And in particular, the context is the words of prayer and oath-taking before God. Don't promise God stuff, right? Like you, have you ever promised, God, I promise all, how good are you at keeping your promise? Don't, don't do that, right? And wh when do we start promising God stuff? You know when we start promising God stuff? When you're trying to get something from God that you don't have. When you're trying to manipulate God. I'll do this if you give me this. Like, stop. Be careful. Be slow to utter a, a word before God because God is in heaven and you're on earth. I think most of us probably tend to the side not of reverencing God too much. Most of us, maybe some of you do that, but most of us probably tend to the side of not remembering God is in heaven, right? And if you came from a different culture and a different background, this sermon, the first point would mostly be about reminding you God has a fatherly care for you. He does want to listen to you. He does invite you. And if you don't pray because you think God won't listen to you, hear that. God is a father of those who've repented of their sins, who are contrite. The New Testament says in Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, let us be grateful 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God is a, your heavenly father is a consuming fire. Uh, so if you're one of those people that kind of like doesn't like when people talk about God's attributes of being holy and right, and like, oh, I wish he wasn't like that. Whoa, careful, 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 right? Because he is that. And he was that before you were born. He was that before you had that opinion of him. Be careful, right? Reverence God as the God that he is. Now, even that verse talks about God's kingdom and God's honor and, and his reverence, which is what Jesus gets to. So he says, start out by recognizing your father wants to listen to you, but he's in heaven. So that should temper the kind of requests that you give to him. But secondly, he says, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Point number two, it means this. Pray for God to be honored more and more. Pray for God to be honored, reverenced, uh, worshiped. That one word honor, you know, you could add other words to that, but you know what I'm trying to get at here, right? You're praying that God would be seen as holy. The Old Testament uses this interesting language of the vindication of God's holiness. Like, God is holy, but people don't think God's holy, so God, vindicate your holiness. So prove it. Show everybody. Justify that you're the holy one in front of everybody's eyes. Passages that talk about that. This is an important one. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23 talk about this. Uh, this is when the people of Israel have been in a lot of sin, and Ezekiel is praying, and God is speaking, and God says something here about how he's going to save people. This is Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore, this is God speaking. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Imagine if, imagine if you heard a, a sermon on the gospel of Jesus Christ and you heard God saying, it is not for your sake that I am about to come die on the cross. That's the, the parallel. It's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Now, does that mean that he doesn't care for these people? It doesn't mean that. He does care for his people. You can look at a lot of passages that say that. But what is God's overarching concern? It's the honor and glory of God, right? Um, now, his love is still there. His care is still there. But what does God care most about? He cares most about the honor and glory of his name. He says, I'm not going to act for your sake, although you'll benefit, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you've came. So this is talking to these Israelites who are supposed to be God's holy people, right? They're supposed to do what's right, uh, but they don't, and they don't live like God's people. And everybody knows these, uh, it's like these, these Christians aren't living like Christians, right? So that's the parallel in today's language, right? God's people aren't acting like God's people. And God says to them, I'm going to save you, but it's not because you deserve it. And it's not even for your sake. It's because I don't want my name to be profaned anymore among the nations. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And what he'll do is he'll take these Israelites, even though they've been really sinful, he'll bring them back into the land of Israel. And that was meant to prove to everybody, hey, God is still God. God still makes those promises. You guys think God doesn't keep his promises? I'm going to show you I keep my promises, even with these Israelites who've done wrong. Okay? So that's Ezekiel 36, but the reason I bring that up is it shows us that idea of God vindicates his holiness by saving people, by doing what he's done. God's also 
seen as holy, not just by his saving work, that, that is primary, but secondarily, God is seen as holy through the good works of his people, right? We already saw that in Matthew chapter 5, if you remember, Jesus told people, you're salt and you're light, so you're going to stand out in the world as a Christian, but why? What's the point? Why will you do that? Well, he says, this is Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that the purpose that they may see your good, good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So why are the good works happening with these Christians? Jesus says, it's so that God gets glory, so that God's honored. So let's take this back to prayer because I think this is, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about um, all these other periphery things. We're talking about prayer. When we pray, God, we want you to be more and more honored. You see how it's really hard and maybe it's hypocritical for you to pray, God, I just want you to be honored today. And then you leave your prayer time and you go out and you use your mouth however you want to use it. Or you go disobey God again and again. It's hard for you to keep doing that when you're really genuinely praying, God, I want you to be honored. If in prayer time you're worshiping God and saying, God, I, I'm reading your Bible today, I can see you're strong, you're righteous. You're more righteous than I would expect you to be. You're more holy than I'd expect you to be. God, you're really good. I, I haven't appreciated this about you. You could be in the Bible doing that, and then you leave prayer, and then you live like that's not true, right? See the contradiction there? So when we pray this, it starts to change you. This is why sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, when you pray, it will end up changing you. That's what they mean. They mean this right here. They mean that if you're genuinely praying for these good things, it is really hard to keep doing all the, the, the sin that we're doing outside of that. And to hallow God's name in prayer. What does that mean? Well, specifically in prayer, when God's people pray, one thing they often do is they start by recognizing who God is. Like we see this in Daniel, when, when Daniel prays. In Daniel 9, 4 and 5, when he starts to pray to God, just listen to what he says. He says, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. And he goes on. But think about how he starts. He says, God, you're good, you're righteous, you're perfect, and we're not. And even though he, like, has Daniel been the one breaking God's commandments? No. He's like the good guy. But he says, we've, this whole nation, we've all messed up. We've done wrong. And you're good all the time, God, but we're not. That's the posture of prayer we need to start with. Before you go running and asking for an A on your test that you didn't study for, Right? Maybe start by recognizing who God is. Before you start saying, oh God, I just want a boyfriend or girlfriend. Oh God, I just want to go to this college. Oh God, I just want to do this. Before maybe you start running in with the, you know, I want some, I want more, I want that right there, right? Like Eden does. Before you do that, step back. Recognize who you're talking to and, and hallow his name. Worship him for what he's done. The Bible says one day, everyone will do that. There will come a day, this is Habakkuk 2.14, he says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will come a day when there will not be a single teenager that does not recognize that Jesus is Lord. There will not be a single adult that will not live in perfect accordance with God. Like, that's a crazy thought. You've never lived in a world like that. I've never lived in a world like that. It's almost hard to believe sometimes that that could be the case. But when will that take place? It will take place when God's kingdom comes. And that's the next thing he says to pray for. He says, God, hallowed be your name. We want you to be honored. And God, bring your kingdom. Let it, let it be established, even in our lifetime. 
That's the third thing. Pray for God to establish his kingdom soon. That's point number three. I want you to pray for God to establish his kingdom soon. He will do that, just like his name will be honored, and his will will be done whether you pray for it or not. But this is how he invites you to pray. He wants you to be a part of this. If you're to ask for something, and then it happens, and God brings it, it's a lot more satisfying for you and for God if you were a part of the asking process, correct? Feels a lot better than God just doing it without you. Why does God invite you in this? It's not because God needs you to pray for this. It's because God wants to include you in what he's doing. It's a gracious, fatherly thing of God to say, ask me, ask me for my kingdom to come. And then when it comes, you're gonna be so excited that it's here, that it arrived, that Jesus actually rules. But if your heart never seeks this, if your heart never wants this, right, this is a problem. That's why if you're in Matthew 6, just drop down to Matthew 6, 33. This is in a section all about anxiety, right? These people are so anxious about their futures and what they're going to wear and how they're going to be perceived and a lot of things that you might be anxious about. Verse 33. Well, let's start in verse 32. He says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, what they'll eat or drink or wear, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So God knows your needs. He knows what you, what you need. Look at verse 33. But you... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What's your top priority? It's not what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Not about your future. Your top priority as a disciple should not be who you get married to. It's not your top priority. Your top priority is not how much money you make. It's not your top priority. Right? It shouldn't be your top priority as a disciple. What should your top priority as a disciple be? To seek God's kingdom first and then and his righteousness. Right? So I want to do what's right and I want God's kingdom to come. And then he says, and all of these things will be added to you, right? If your concern would just be when you pray, if your concern, even when you don't pray, would just be, I want God to rule. I want God to be the king. And whatever God has planned for me is fine. If that would be your concern, it would change your life. It would change the way you pray. Like, think about what do you pray about most, right? What takes up the most of your prayer? A lot of you, it's a, uh, you know, what college am I going to go to, right? That's top concern. Or will this person like me or not? Will I be accepted here or not? Will those people embrace me or not? What is my future? Like, that's a lot of our concerns, right? That, if I said, hey, what do you pray about? Those probably take up, that's the, like, forefront of your mind. That's what, you know, I want some, I want that right there, I want more. That's what Eden prays about, right? Not prays about, but asks about, right? Whatever's in front of her. Those are the big things in front of you right now. What are you going to be? How much money are you going to make? Where are you going to live? Right? Maybe that one you don't care about. Leaders care about that, right? Where are you going to live? Can you afford it? Don't move out of state, right? All that stuff, right? People care about that. Um, so yeah, by the way, that's a good example. Your priorities and what you care about now will be different, but you'll always have things that compete for the top spot. You'll always have things that you can be concerned about. Um, but do you care about those things more than God's kingdom coming? And if the answer is, yeah, yeah, I guess I do. Well, then I'd encourage you to change your priorities. Right? Some of us are so concerned about college or friends or boyfriends or girlfriends when if that takes up all your prayer time and there's never, like, I'm seeking God's kingdom. I want to do what God wants me to do. Right? And then let those other things fall in line. You can still pray for those things. It's not wrong to pray about those things. But so, some of us are afraid to pray. Like, would you want to pray for Jesus to come back if what that meant was you didn't get to go to prom or you didn't get to graduate? 
Because, you know, Jesus came back. What a, what a terrible interruption that would be, right? Now, I say that. You didn't laugh because for some of you, it's like, yeah, I would rather, you know, people will joke about that. Yeah, like maybe God can come back like, you know, just a little bit after I get what I want, right? See how silly that is, right? Oh, maybe Jesus can come back and change the world. Yeah, but I want to do my stuff first. So n- not until the summertime. Not, maybe in October, Jesus can come back and he can establish his kingdom, but not before then because I got all these plans, all these things that I want. Can I tell you? That is the heart of someone who's not seeking first the kingdom of God. And a lot of us are guilty of that. Even if you're a well-meaning Christian, we all get to times where we are not seeking first the kingdom. And my point this morning is, how should you pray? Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. The passage I wanted you to turn to is 2 Peter chapter 3. You can turn there real quick. I'll read it for you too. 2 Peter 3, uh, Peter's getting those Christians to look not at their circumstance, but to look ahead and forward to what's called the day of the Lord, which is a phrase used in the Old Testament to talk about when God comes, judges sin, and gives this righteous kingdom to his people, okay? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, I'll start there. After he said, hey, God's not slow to fulfill his promise, he's patient. In verse 10, he says, but when the patience runs out, when, when, when Jesus comes back, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Do thieves tell you? before they show up. No, they just show up at an unexpected time. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You'll see who's in and who's out. That's the judgment Jesus talked about in the gospel of Matthew, right? Sheep and goats, uh, good teachers, bad teachers, good fruit, bad fruit, right? It's like, it'll all be separated. Verse 11, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Look at that word dissolved. It's an important word. Your college experience will be dissolved. Your dorm room that you're so looking forward to, it will be dissolved, right? Might even be dissolved before the end. You never know, right? Uh, What fits in that category of things that'll be dissolved? Probably a lot of the stuff you're worried about. Your, your clothes, as dumb as that sounds. So many of us worry about clothes or what we're going to wear. Are those things going to be dissolved when the world is burned up? Yes. Okay? Correct. So they're all going to be dissolved. They're all going to burn. Uh, one time when I was a kid, uh, I had a babysitter. I remember something that she said. It stuck with me. Uh, she's now, I think, a pastor's wife. Uh, but anyway, she's a babysitter of me and my siblings. And I think I like, dented her car, you know? I was playing basketball or doing something. I think I like hit my head or I think I was actually like, it sounds weird, but getting in the trunk. You know, you know when you try to get in the trunk and like you mess something up in someone's car and you feel bad, right? Like, oh, sorry, I messed up your car. I think I dented, you know, the inside like panel of like a trunk. And if you kick it the wrong way, it like dislodges. I think that's what I did. So I didn't dent the outside, but I dented the inside because I was messing around, right? And I'm like, oh, sorry, sorry. And she's like, oh, it's okay, it'll burn. When? Well, oh, it's okay. It's just a thing. It'll burn, right? That's a good perspective, right? (laughs) Says to me, I was probably 10 years old and I still remember it, right? It'll burn, right? How concerned are you about the things that will burn, that will be dissolved? You're so concerned. I need to get that car. Guess what? That car will burn. If you're more interested in cars than God's kingdom, remember you're interested in something that will burn. If you're more interested in going to college than you are in following God, remember 
that co- it will burn. Those experiences will be over. The friends that you want to have, they're not even going to be your friends in 10 years anymore. They're not even going to know your name. You're like, oh, that guy looks different at your 10-year high school reunion. They don't even care about you in 10 years. It'll burn before the world burns. But here's the point. If all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. How do you hasten the coming day of God? You pray for it to come faster. Not only are you waiting patiently, you're asking God to bring it sooner, this day of the Lord. Because of which, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promises, we, Christians, disciples, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If you never think about that, if you never care about that, I will not be surprised if your prayers are all concerned with these little tiny things that in some point you'll look back on and say, I wish I prayed bigger than that. I wish I cared about something more than that. Christians from the beginning have always been praying for God to come back soon. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, there's a little word. Uh, it's a word we don't say very much. Maybe you've heard Christians say this word. It's the word Maranatha. It means, oh, Lord, come. It means come soon, come quickly. Like, come to this earth, come back. And it's talking to Jesus. It's a prayer, asking Jesus to return to the earth. It means, Jesus, return soon. Don't return later, return sooner. The reason Christians say that, and I was reading that in 1 Corinthians 16, there's also a, a little prayer book that was written in the second century that was written to teach people how to pray and teach people how to live the Christian life. And in the section about God's kingdom coming, they like they insert that word, Maranatha, return, Jesus, come back. And Christians have always been praying for that. They've always been expecting that. And if you're a Christian and you're not expecting Jesus to come back, we're missing something in your Christian life. Jesus even said in Matthew 24, you, if you don't expect Jesus to come back, you'll be like one of his servants that thinks that the master's not coming back and you'll start, it says in that text, abusing the other servants. Right? One of the reasons people take advantage of others is because they think, I will get away with this. I will not be held accountable, at least not right now. Nobody's going to interrupt me for taking advantage of people, right? Jesus says, that's what you'll end up acting like, even in small ways, if you're not expecting Jesus to return. You should expect Jesus to return at any point. That's where the New Testament points us. Because that's the last thing Jesus ever said chronologically. You know what that means? Like, timeline. The last thing Jesus says chronologically is Revelation 22:20. Do you know what Jesus said? Surely I'm coming soon. It's the last thing he said. I'm coming back. So um, you should be ready for that. You should live like that. You should pray like that. I would rather you pray for Jesus to come back than to pray, God, I hope I get into this college. God, I hope I have this boyfriend or girlfriend. God, I hope I have this thing. God, will you please give me this? It'd be better to start praying for God's kingdom and all the realities that surround that than praying for those other things. Seek first God's kingdom. Then he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, is a funny one because we immediately think, oh, that just has to do with God's will being done. Because if you think about it, is God's will done on earth? Yes and no, right? Do people always do what God wants them to do? Well, no. But is God's big overarching will being done? Yes. So yes and no. What about in heaven? What about where everyone's holy and perfect? Is God's will being done perfectly there? You'd say, yeah, it is. So 
It's happening perfectly in heaven. It's not happening perfectly on earth. We're asking God, make it perfect here, right? Have your will be done here. Interesting, that phrase, so in heaven, so also on earth. As in heaven, so also on earth. Um, That is true about every one of these phrases. Like if you're gonna go back to to Matthew 6 really fast and look at these, uh, hallowed be your name. Where is God's name being honored and revered? Is it happening on earth? Well, not completely. Is it happening perfectly in heaven? Yes, it is. So that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, I think applies to all of these requests. That's why it's not its own request. It applies to all of them. God, we want your name to be honored here like it is there. God, we want your kingdom to come here like it already is there. God, we want your will to be done here as it already is there. That's what we're asking in all these requests. And notice, we are basically taking God's agenda or his plan or his purpose or whatever word you want to use for that, right? His stuff and saying that's more important than my stuff. That's more important than my agenda or my plan or my hopes for the future. I'm saying, God, I want your promises to be fulfilled and your will to be done. Fourth thing, uh, pray for God's will to be done in our sinful world. And I call it our sinful world because like, that's a good definition of what's not right about the world. It's our sin. It's even the, the effects of sin on our planet. Romans 8 says, and I quoted this earlier, but Romans 8 says that the creation is in bondage. So the reason people get cancer, why does it happen? Right? Did they do a particular sin to get it? No, no. But the creation is like in chains and it's not free. One day, God will take the, the natural world and free it from all of its corruption. So if you take you know, something good and you build it, what happens to that good thing that you build? If you just leave it to the natural elements, it all gets worse, right? It, things burn, uh, water damage, water rot, erosion, right? You scientists, you know, it gets worse, right? But one day the idea is whatever will be built will be encouraged by the natural world. And there are some things in our natural world that, you know, God refreshes and rebuilds. But one day it's like the whole world will be all good, no bad. All pointing towards life and goodness, no death and decay. So that same paradigm is true when it comes to our Christian life, right? The world is sinful, right? God's will is not being done perfectly. And we're asking God, let it be done perfectly. Jesus modeled this for us in Matthew 26. We studied this at camp, but remember when Jesus prayed to the Father about going to the cross? He says, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's how we should pray. We should say, God, I want what you want in this situation. I want to go to college where you want me to go to college, right? So then start thinking, where does God want you to go to college? Oh, well, I'd really like to go here, but you know, Maybe my family needs this help from me. Well, then maybe that's God's will, right? Well, it's obviously God's will if God shuts a door, right? If you don't get in, to, you know, some of you applied to Harvard and Stanford and, you know, you didn't get in. So guess what? I don't think it's God's will for you to go there if you don't get in, right? Oh, and by the way, just because you get in, I don't know if that's God's will for you to go there either, right? So think about that. An open door is not the same thing as that's God's will, right? Because a lot of you got 20 open doors because you applied to 50 colleges, right? Don't go to 20 colleges. You can't do that. That's not an open door, right? It is an open door. It doesn't mean it's God's will, which is another conversation. Maybe we should talk about later, but uh, not this morning. Although Pastor Mike went really long, so I'm actually going to probably go a little bit long because he probably won't get done. You'll be out there eating donuts, and then the parents will all come out, and you'll be like, man, he went really long. Uh, so a couple more verses for you to write down. Uh, one comes in the same chapter, okay? 
or not the same chapter, but in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verse 6, remember that was the very beginning. That was where Jesus was telling us who was going to be the blessed person. Who's going to like be happy in the end? What kind of person? Well, it's the kind of person. This is Matthew 5, 6, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, right? So it's the kind of person whose will or desires, that's what will means, it's what you want, when your wants and God's wants are the same. Who are the people that are going to be sad in the end? The people whose wants are so different than God's wants, because who's going to get what he wants in the end? God, correct? Right? He's going to, it's going to happen. So like, how are you going to be happiest? It's not by you saying, God, I wish you would just change your will to want what I want, right? If you think a particular sin that you're doing, that you just wish God would accept it, right? Here's the point. Your will is against God's will, and God is going to win. So the only way for you to be happy in the end is for you to conform your will to his, to make that match up, right? If you're in a sinful relationship, don't think that that's God's will for you. I'll tell you, it's not God's will for you, because God doesn't want that because that's against what he wants. So conform your will to God's will. Right? Don't say, God, I wish you'd just change your mind about this situation. Be wrong. You can't change God's mind. The person who's going to hunger and thirst and says, I want my desires to line up with God's. Because naturally, do any of our desires line up with God's naturally? No, they don't naturally, right? And I get it. Me too, right? But I have to say, okay, I need my will to line up with God's will. And you need to do that too as a disciple. Because those are the people that will be satisfied. Now, you might say, okay, what is God's will? But I don't know what God's will is for my life. If I asked you, what is God's will for your life? What does God want for your life? Uh, you would say, first of all, if you're really smart, you'd say, oh, well, I don't know God's will. You know, there's the declared will of God, the revealed will of God, and the hidden mysterious will of God, right? And they're different, and you'd give me all that. And I'd say, that's amazing that you know that. Congratulations. What does God want you to do today, though? Oh, well, you know what the Bible says? Oh, here you go. Congratulations. You're so smart. You figured it out. It's what the Bible says, right? God's will is what he tells you to do. What does God tell you? Well, I, you know, you don't want to hear this, right? But what does God want you to do? What does the scripture say? Honor your father and mother. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. For it's the first commandment with the promise. Oh. Does God want you to obey your parents? Well, maybe not. No. What does the Bible say? It says you do. So do it. That's what God wants you to do, right? Does God want you to pray? Yeah, because he tells you to. So it's God's will for you to pray. He wants you to pray. So pray. It's God's will for you to be a certain kind of person, like the Sermon on the Mount describes. Right? What is God's will for your life when it comes to, I don't know, you being sanctified? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And the first, first primary sin that he calls out he says that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's just the first one. A lot of other sins, but that's the first one. And that's probably the first one that you need to hear today, right? What's God's will for your life that you stop doing what you're doing if what you're doing is breaking God's sexual rules? And you said, that's God's will. It's God's will, for you to, it's God's will for you to be done. So take it to the bank, right? And if it's not, blame me, right? Because God's will is that you would not do wrong in that area. What else is God's will? Well, 1 Thessalonians tells us another thing. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. The will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what does God want you to do? He wants you to be thankful. How does God want you to think? He wants you to be grateful. That's God's will. I know that for certain because he says that. And that's kind of cool, right? 
First Thessalonians gives us two things, right? Your sanctification, that you'd abstain from sexual immorality. What does God want you to do? He wants you to end a relationship if it's sexually immoral. He does. I can just tell you because it says that. He says it. It's not my, it wasn't my word. It's his words. This is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Great? Okay. What else is God? What kind of attitude should you have? Well, grateful. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will. That's what he wants for you. Right? And those are just two passages. You can look at the other passages that talk about this too, but that's two good starting points just in one book. Sanctification. Right? That's your actions. That's the way you live. It's your pattern of life. It's your path. It's your journey. Whatever, you know, funny word you want to give to that. And then your attitude. Your, your mental state, if you want to call it that. Um, your mental health. What should it be? Well, it should be grateful. That's what, oh, but what about all this stuff? Well, God said he wants you to be grateful. That's God's will for you. So, so, so do that. Be that. It's pretty simple. Right? Sometimes I ask people, um, I maybe have shared this with you before, but a, a, a trick that I use, it's not a trick, but it's, I'm telling you about it now. But uh, um, there you go. Ooh, maybe they are done, right? They're probably not done. Let's just be honest. Uh, what I was telling you was a trick, okay? If you, if you come ask for advice, one of the first things I'll ask you is, well, what do you think God wants you to do? And a lot of times you'll be like, oh, well, he'd obviously want me to do the right thing and he'd want me to do this and this and this. But what do you think I should do, John? It's like, well, I want you to do what God wants you to do. And it sounds like if you just asked yourself that question, you'd probably have the right answer most of the time. Now, here's where you don't have the right answer. When you don't know what God wants you to do, right? It's like, I have no idea in this circumstance. But the more you think about it, if you're trained by the Bible, you'll start to know, yeah, what does God want me to do? Well, he wants me to do the right thing. He wants me to honor my parents. He wants me to obey. He wants me to... Uh, be sanctified. He wants me to read the Bible. He wants me to pray. He wants me to go to the church, right? Does, does God want you in a sport that you're in, right? Oh, I don't know. Well, what does God want you to do? Well, I know God wants me at church. Okay. Well, let's start there. Is, is what you're doing incompatible? What about with your job? If your job is incompatible with going to church, right, at all, well, then I, I guess it's not God's will for you to take that job. Have you ever, like, think about it. That is so, like, definitive, right? And we don't like to talk like that. Well, then it's not God's will for you because we don't want to speak for God. And I get it. We, I, we don't want to speak for God unless he speaks. But if it comes in conflict, clear conflict, unavoidable conflict with what God's word says, well, then it's not God's will for you. Now, again, this is not a sermon about God's will. It's a sermon about prayer. So this is all about how should we pray. Well, pray for God's will to be done. Pray for God's kingdom to come. Pray for God to be honored. And do you notice, if you start praying like this, you start becoming a different kind of person. You start getting sanctified. You start growing in godliness, right? Like there will come a day, I hope, <laughs> that my daughter will ask me for things that are bigger than the goldfish right in front of her, right? Those days are coming. They're not here yet, but it's okay. They're coming. One day, she might even ask me, if I say, Eden, what do you want to eat? She might ask me, Daddy, whatever you want to eat. I'm like, oh, that's really nice of you. You've, you've matured. Now you're four years old, right? I don't know how old you have to be to start asking for that. But, uh, you know, maybe one day she'll want what I want, right? And, and, and even it'd be nice to hear her express it, right? Be so nice to hear that. What I'm telling you is, and the encouragement this morning is, okay, if you're a disciple, if you're a Christian, all of you have the capability of praying like Jesus said. All, none of you are too young. None of you are too immature. All of us can do it. But let's start thinking bigger, before we start praying for our stuff. Next week, we'll talk about how to pray for the right things and what things God tells us to pray for, because there's a lot, there's some good things here. But before any of that, he says, make sure you pray with God in mind. Get your requests adjusted by God. So let's pray right now, and we'll talk about this all again on Wednesday night. But let's pray first.
God, we recognize you this morning as the holy God that is infinitely more holy than the holiest person in this room. We know that you stand in a different category, and we recognize that we need to live up to what you're telling us to do. We're so thankful that we have your Bible. Without your Bible, we'd be so lost. We wouldn't know what your will is, but we can have a really good idea of what your will is by what your Bible says. And and even in the things that we don't know, God, I pray that even this morning, we would start to pray better and, and more wisely, that we'd seek first the kingdom, and, and that that would shape the way we pray and shape the decisions we make too. I pray that some of us would uh, repent of bad decisions that we made and, and seek to correct them by doing what you want first. We know that you're a good God. We know that you're a loving, caring God who loves us deeply. We know that you showed your love for us on the cross when Jesus died. And we know that you've accepted us, not based on what we've done, but because of Jesus' perfect, righteous life. And I know that we can come to you boldly. So I pray that we would more often. Pray that our prayer lives would increase and grow because of this sermon, because of the word that we heard this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.